If you'll turn in your Bibles to Ruth, we look to what's often called the Old Bible, the Old Testament. Look to the book of Ruth, and I want to bring a verse to your attention this morning in chapter 1, and then we also will focus on a, one verse in chapter 2. Let's look at Ruth, the first chapter, and verse 19. So they too, that's Ruth and Naomi, went until they came to Bethlehem. And it came to pass when they were come to Bethlehem that all the city was moved about them, and they said, Is this Naomi? And she said unto them, Call me not Naomi, call me Marah, for the Almighty hath done dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, and the Lord hath brought me home again empty. Why then call ye me Naomi, seeing the Lord hath testified against me, and the Almighty hath afflicted me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, with her, which returned out of the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem in the beginning of barley harvest. And that's the title of the message here this morning, the beginning of barley harvest. As I was reading that the other morning, I probably read that. I can't even presume to count the times that I've read through and studied the book of Ruth through the years. But as I read that, that last line, it really just jumped off the page to me. Why would the Word of God note to us that they returned at the precise time when it was the beginning of the barley harvest? There's not a line in the Word of God that is wasted. You understand that? Everything from the genealogies to the amens to the verilies, the different things that are in the Word of God, there's not a line in the Word of God that is not there for a purpose. And so as I begin to think about the purpose of why they, the Lord, by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, wanted to let us know thousands of years later that Ruth and Naomi return in the beginning of the barley harvest, then the wheels in my mind begin to turn. So let's consider what the problem is here. What is the problem? We, we read in verse 19, it's like we're kind of jumping into the middle of what's going on. And I know you Bible readers are very familiar with what's going on. But just to give a brief recap so you can understand the significance of this, this scene that we enter into. Understand what's going on here. What the context, what is the problem? One of the commentators that I read put it like this, and I like this. Perhaps this world of sorrows presents no sadder picture than that here brought before us of Ruth and Naomi returning in the time of barley harvest. The return of a childless widow to the spot she had left 10 years before, a happy wife and mother. What a bleak and sad scene that we have set before us here. As you know, 10 years have passed since Naomi went out with her husband and their two sons. And the reason that they went out, if you'll read in the first chapter, is because there was a famine in the land. Now, the best I can tell, the time frame in which they existed, they were either a first, a second, or a third generation family in the promised land. They may have been a first generation. You know, the Lord brings the nation of Israel out of Egypt. They wander for 40 years, and then they settle into the different lots, into the different meets and bounds that the Lord had Joshua set for the tribes. And the tribe of Judah 
had their boundaries set pretty much with its center as Bethlehem. So it's not like it was, the, it, they didn't call it a capital, but it was, a, it was one of the central villages. And, and it's just a village now. It's not a tremendous population in Bethlehem. It never was. But in the providence of God, Naomi and her husband began to make their life as either first or second, and I believe third would be a stretch, probably first or second generation Israelites in the promised land. That's significant. Because if they are first generation or if they are second generation, you find that when famine comes, and that famine was probably a result of the chastisement of God because the people were disobeying very quickly. If you read the book of Joshua, they were disobeying very quickly when they got in the promised land. And so in that first or second generation of Israelites in their new land, because of the difficult circumstances that came along in life, they left the promised land and they went to Moab. If you know anything about Moab, it was a border country. And I just don't have any patience anymore when I hear folks say, and I hadn't heard it lately, especially not among y'all, but I hear folks say, I just can't understand the Bible. I just don't understand, you know, I can't get anything out of it. The reason most folks don't get anything out of it is because they don't dig into it. You know, here's one little line, and somebody says, well, you're a preacher, Brother Tim. You're supposed to be interested in those things. That is correct. I am a preacher, and I am supposed to be interested in these things, but that does not exempt God's children from being interested in those things. And so when you come across something like that, why does it indicate to us that it was the beginning of barley harvest? What is the significance of that? And there's a tremendous significance to that. And then there you go. You're off on a study. It'll take you all week to study about why and the significance of the spring barley harvest. And then you come across something like Moab. Well, what in the world is Moab? Well, I'll just give you a hint. You could go study the book of Genesis and learn the terrible, pitiful, depraved origin of the nation of Moab. And it was a depraved culture. It was horrible. They practiced child sacrifice. They practiced abortion. They practiced all types of unbelievable, horrible, fornicative practices. People say, well, God was just mean to drive all those people and those nations out of the promised land. If you go and read what they were doing, more Bible study in the book of Leviticus, it describes what they were doing. And it made God sick what they were doing. He says, I will spew them out. Because what they were doing was sickening to God. May our lives never be a testament to making God sick. Let's let our lives be a testament to pleasing God. But those nations were making God sick with what they were doing, how they were living their lives, how they were destroying children. And the way the culture was just, it was just putrid. And that's the way Moab was. And that's where Naomi and her husband fled to in a time of famine. Now, this is probably worthy of note. The names of the two sons were Milan and Shalon. One of those names means weak, and the other means sickly. So I'm taking a little bit of liberty here, but maybe when the famine hit, they thought, well, we just don't have good enough health care here. So we're going to have to move over to another place where there's better health care for our sons. Putting the emphasis on the health of their children when God is the great physician, you see? God could have taken care of those boys just as easy in the land of Bethlehem than over there in the land of Moab. And because Naomi and her husband made the wrong decision that went against God's will to leave the promised land that God had graciously and mercifully provided to them, then they experience some very tough things when they go to Moab. Naomi goes out full. 
She's got a husband and she's got two sons that she loves. They go to Moab and they live for about 10 years. The boys get married. So the boys were probably in their teens when they left, probably mid-20s as time goes by. They get married, and in a short period of time, her husband dies, her two boys dies, and she's left with two daughters-in-law, which in that culture, I mean, it really, in a sense, it meant nothing because those, those women were free to go out and find a life in another direction. That's the way the culture was. And that's also the way the Mosaic Law was. Once your husband passed or once your spouse passed, you were free, you know, to go find another life. But one of those chose not to go. Her name was Ruth. She said, entreat me not to leave thee. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. And where, you're, where you go and where your God is, your God will be my God. Now, that's often read at, at a weddings, is it not? And that's a lovely thought. To, it's a wonderful blessing to have upon a marriage and, and look at it that way. But remember, it didn't come from a wedding. It came from discipleship. <laughs> you understand that? So it, it goes even further than just a wedding. It was a, the individual discipling of a young woman who had the whole world in front of her in the sense of, of being a Moabite and could go back into that culture like the other sister-in-law did, Orpah. She just went back into that culture and we never read about her again. She drifts off into the oblivion of history. We know that she was married to one of the sons and then she left and that's it. But Ruth goes on and becomes famous. We're still talking about her today because she discipled herself to help this poor, childless widow that she felt such compassion for. Oh my goodness, Lord bless us to feel the compassion towards each other that Ruth felt towards her poor mother-in-law. Think about that. If our default, if our default of how we interact and view one another, because, you know, none of us are God. None of us knows what goes on in the lives of each other. You don't know if I had a great week last night, last week, and you don't know if I had a horrible week last week because I don't post it on Facebook. <laughs> now, most people do, so this would be real easy to find out, but you're never going to find that out about Brother Tim. I could have had a great week. I could have had a horrible week. You could have had a great week. You could have had a horrible week. And if our default is anything other than the kind of compassion that Ruth displayed towards her mother-in-law, then you can just look for trouble and anguish. If it's jealousy, if it's envy, if it's anger, if it's non-forgiveness, if it's just look across the litany of things that are there that, that get us all worked up and cause us to stumble. Ruth didn't know everything about Naomi. She didn't know everything about her history and where she came from. She'd never been there. They'd never taken a vacation to the promised land. But her default, I feel sorry for this woman. And I love this woman. And the best that I know to do, the baby steps that I know to take are just to express my love for her and try to be there for her. I tell you, when a body of people, a nation, a community, a church especially, a family will latch on to that, nothing can tear that family apart. When a church will latch on to that and the default is the compassion and the love that Ruth felt, nothing can tear that church apart. That's what we ought to be striving for. Because you don't know what kind of week I had. And I'm not a complainer. And I'm not a bragger. I don't go where to say it was horrible. It was good. It was... I don't know what kind of week you had often, even though I'm involved in your life as your pastor. You know, I don't know unless you tell me. 
I can sense things because I can see the look on your face and I know what you normally look like and all of that, but I'm not God. I can't read that. So you know what? I'm just going to set my default into compassion like what Ruth had. I'm going to try my best. So whatever you're dealing with, if you're rejoicing, I can rejoice with you. If you're mourning, I can mourn with you. So Ruth attaches herself to Naomi. She said, wherever you go, I'll go. What devotion. Whatever you go through, I'll go through it with you. A church that has that kind of devotion to each other can make it through any trial. Whatever you go through, I'll go through it with you. I'm not going to keep you at a distance and say, "Uh, you know, I'm a little holier than you, so I'm just going to keep you back. No, we enter into sufferings with one another. And we enter into joys with one another. That's what Ruth did. And I wonder if in the back of Naomi's mind, that's a long journey from Moab. I'm telling you who put it in her mind and her heart to go home. It was the Lord that put that in her mind and her heart, was to go home. Should have never left. But you understand that at this point in her life, Naomi is pointing the finger squarely at God and saying, look at what God has done to me. She says that. So when I read that, I thought, you know, that's the opposite of what Job did, isn't it? You know, when Job had his children murdered and all of the the substance taken away from him, it says Job never charged God foolishly. See, it's foolish to charge God. And Naomi is foolishly charging God. Look at what she says when she comes back. They see her, and I wouldn't doubt it if they had stopped and paused at the well of Bethlehem, you know, near when you come into the village of Bethlehem. And then all of this, this community begins to see, hey, you know, that's Naomi. Ten years have passed. So she may have a few more grays on her hair. She may have a few more wrinkles on her face. You know, she may have a little slower walk than she had ten years before. She's been through a lot, right? <laughs> She's been through a lot. They <laughs> that's Naomi. They start whispering and say, hey, Naomi, is that you? And she says, don't call me Naomi. And this is one of those Hebrew word pictures that my kids laugh at me about. And they said, Daddy, does it really say that? (laughs) But this is one of those Hebrew word that gives you a picture. And the word is literally pronounced. She says, don't call me Naomi. She says, call me Marah. Marah. The emphasis is on the second syllable. And when you say that, it's like a groan. You get that? She's groaning. She's crying out. She says, I'm bitter. I'm hurt. I'm down. I've been kicked. I've been beaten. And she thinks it's God that is doing all of this, but it's not. And your life, child of God, when you are down and you feel like you're being kicked and beaten and, and, and there's no friend that you have in the world, don't ever think that that's God doing that to you. See, God is your only friend at times. God is your only confidant at times. And he he says, here's why we know this. He says, I promise you, I will never leave you nor forsake you, no matter how bad things get. And Naomi's just pointing the finger. She says, for the Almighty hath dealt very bitterly with me. Is that true? No, that's not true. Naomi and her husband made a bad decision to leave the promised land in a time of famine. And it's interesting that she uses the word Almighty. Because Almighty is a word that is often used to describe God in battle. You know, the Almighty has helped Israel win the battle. And here she uses the term Almighty. As if God has come to battle with her and has slain her and and knocked her to the ground. That's the mentality that you got going on here. And it's just not correct, is it? The only thing that's sustaining her through all of this is God. But she's blaming God. Aren't you glad we have a patient God? Because we've all blamed God, haven't we? (laughs) 
My brother Chris was telling the story recently, and I, I, I had forgotten this. But we were at church one Sunday morning. We were, I don't hardly remember it so far back. Maybe I was six, seven, eight. I don't know. He was maybe 11, 12, 13. But we were at church over in Zion community at Double Branch over there on the hill. I believe this is accurate now. If I'm a little off of my facts, we'll have to verify it, brother, brother Chris. But he said, you know, he was at, we were at church, and the word came that one of the local farmers' barn was on fire. You know, the hay had been too green, and they put it up. And the barn burned down. And Brother Chris said they all went over there, you know, to help, see if there's anything they could do. There's nothing they could do. The barn was lost. The hay was lost. And Brother Chris said he remembers at that age, not understanding the heart of God, he remembers gritting his teeth and saying, God, why did you do this? Why'd you burn this barn down? Of course, he's obviously repentant of that type of thinking. You know, God didn't burn the barn down. The hay was green and it got put up too soon and it caught on fire by spontaneous combustion. That's what burned the barn down. But we've all been there. We've all said, Lord, why are you doing this to me? Now, that's not to dismiss the, the fact that there are many trials and troubles that we go through in life. And, and those things teach us things for sure. God doesn't send them. But if we are looking to the Lord as we go through those things, we'll draw closer to him. See, and that's not what happened to Naomi. The more things happened in her life, the more she began to grit her teeth and blame God with what had happened. I went out full, she says, and the Lord hath brought me home again. Now that's true, isn't it? The Lord has brought her home again through hundreds of miles of difficult terrain with robbers and thieves. These two women have made their way quietly and innocuously back from Moab and they've arrived safely. So the Lord has brought her home. But he says, she says, he's brought me home again empty. Why then call ye me Naomi, seeing the Lord hath testified against me? That's true too now. The Lord had testified against her bad decision because he just let them go. See? And the Almighty hath afflicted me. You see what's going on here? When they come back, it's just a difficult time. So the problem is that you have no sadder picture than this childless widow who left the spot where she lived 10 years before as a happy wife and mother. That ought to be a real caution to us, young and old, about the decisions that we make in life. Be very cautious, especially maybe even to our young people who are just now trying to find their way and trying to find their careers, you know, our graduates and so forth. But it doesn't just apply to them. Decisions come along every day. And those decisions can have great consequence on how our life goes. And the decision that Naomi and her husband made had a terrible consequence on their life. She lost her husband, she lost her boys, and she lost a daughter-in-law, but she's got one daughter-in-law left. And don't you imagine that maybe Ruth was a little offended when she looked, Naomi looks at them and says, Call me Marah. I went out full, but I've come home empty. Well, what is Ruth? You know, this woman is not just humble and seeking help. You know, she doesn't even understand the extent of the help that she needs. And she's even offending those that are there to help her. <laughs> Haven't we fallen in that category before? You know, especially as a husband or a wife. You know, you, you know, that's the very person that's supposed to be there to support you. And then sometimes it just doesn't happen. You know, and then it just goes from there. That's just the way sinful people are. So here's the providence of God. They arrive back home in the time of the barley harvest. Do you understand what that means? The time of the barley harvest was literally the day of Passover. Y'all remember those messages that I preached a while back on the God of the festival? 
They arrive home just in time for the spring festive calendar to begin. You know, God is the God of festival. God is the God of feasting. Think about the significance of where they were, where they went, where they were, and now where they are. They left in a time of famine because they just thought, you know, we just can't make it here. When everybody else stayed there. So they go away into this place and they, they experience more and more famine. Not, maybe they had food and maybe they had other luxuries, but they experienced a tremendous spiritual famine. You see? And that's what the world will give to you. Let me tell you this. It is better to starve and die in Bethlehem, in the house of bread, God's place. It's better to starve and die in God's place than it is to go out and live and thrive in the places of the world. It's better. And if you see what God has done for you, you fully embrace that. It's better to starve and die in the house of bread than it is to live and thrive out in the, the, the kingdoms of the world. So they come home at the time of harvest. The barley harvest. That's the first harvest that came in every spring. The, you know, the God of the festival. The God of the holy day, which is where we get our word for holiday. That is the true character of God. Our God is a celebratory God. Our God is one that wants to rejoice with you. You know, the church is not a place of sad faces and gloom and doom. The church is a place of joy. It is God's continuing Pentecost, continuing spring celebration until the day of the Feast of Trumpets, until the day of whenever the Lord will come back and gather His people at the Feast of Tabernacles when He gathers us up from these tents that we live in down here, these temporary cottages that we live in. You see, this, even the, the Jewish festive calendar was set to point us away from this place and to look somewhere else. The Lord is coming. And they arrive back into Bethlehem, the house of bread. That's what Bethlehem means. They arrive back at the house of bread in the time of bread. Because that's what you make bread out of is barley. Now, the barley bread was good. It was good. But it wasn't quite as good as the wheat bread. The wheat is coming in in a few more weeks. And in the spring festive calendar, when they arrive home at the, at the beginning of barley harvest, three festivals are beginning. Three at one time. Three in one. Like God is three in one, you have three in one festivals. You have the day of the Passover. You have the feast of the Passover, which signifies when the Lord borned His people out of Egypt. They had to put the lamb, the blood of the lamb on the doorpost and above the post. And when the Lord judged all of Egypt, including Israel, if they had the blood on their doorpost, the Lord literally stepped over, skipped over. That's what pass over means. He passed over the houses that had the blood and not one firstborn died in the houses that had the blood of the lamb on them. Y'all see the significance of that? I'm telling you, that's amazing that God set that type years and years and centuries ago and it, it points us to the salvation of our souls. When the Lord skipped over you, He stepped over you and did not judge you, but because he judged the Lamb of God. So it's the beginning of Passover. And not only that, the next day after Passover is the beginning of the unleavened, uh, uh, the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. Well, they didn't have leaven all week. The reason they observed that, you remember, is because they left Israel, Egypt so quick. They left out so quick that they didn't have time to put leaven in their dough. So when they cooked their bread, they baked their bread, it would make it rise. They left so quickly. God delivered them so quickly. They didn't have time to do that. So they took unleavened bread and they ate unleavened bread and they cooked it as they went along. That's the feast of the unleavened bread. That's beginning the next day after Naomi and Ruth arrive at the beginning of barley harvest. Two days after the Passover, three days maybe, is the feast of the first fruits where the priest goes out and observes 
the local farmer, which was probably Boaz, by the way, goes out and observes the local farmer, and they cut down the part that has grown up the quickest and the best. They take the first fruit of the barley and they cut it down under the supervision of the priest and they take it to the tabernacle and the priests pick up those, those sheaves that they bound together and they wave them before the Lord, before the altar, and they say, Lord, accept the sacrifice that we're giving to you and bless the rest of our crops. You say, well, that's kind of confusing. Not at all if you understand that Jesus Christ was the first fruit sheaf. He was the first fruit that was sacrificed and He made sure that all of the crop is secure. And you are the crop, child of God. He made sure it was all secure. So all these things point to Jesus. And then if you read over the next chapter, Ruth, the second chapter, in the last verse, verse 23, it says, So she kept fast by the maidens of Boaz to glean unto the end of barley harvest and of wheat harvest. Y'all see that? And dwelt with her mother-in-law. You know what that means? That means that that period of time from when they arrived home and we read what goes on in the book of Ruth spanned a period of about three months because that was the time of the spring harvest cycle, the spring harvest festival cycle of the Jews, of the Israelites. It started with Passover and then you had the Feast of Unleavened Bread for seven days and then in the midst of that you had the Feast of the first fruits, and then seven weeks later and on the 50th day after the seventh week was finished, you had the day of Pentecost. And that's where they brought the wheat harvest. You see? I'll tell you what. You, you can't study the Word of God and, and come to the conclusion that our God is not some, a festive God. He is a festive God. He wants you to celebrate. You know, I've said before, I'm kind of repenting of this. I've said, aren't you glad that we weren't Jews and we had to keep that law? I think I'll say this. I'm glad I wasn't a priest who had to dot the I's and cross the T's of the law. I'm glad I wasn't a priest but I tell you what, it would have been a, a glorious thing to live and thrive in the nation of Israel because you had all these holidays coming along all the time. You could not work for those seven days of unleavened bread. You could not work on every Sabbath day. You could not work on the day of Pentecost. You see, the Lord understood that the people needed rest, but they needed more than just physical rest. They needed to rest in Him. And that's exactly what Naomi and Ruth needed. Would you all agree with that? They needed to rest in Jehovah. They needed to rest in Jesus' arms. They needed to rest in the Almighty. Instead of fighting against the Almighty and saying, look what He's done to me. So what happens here is, when they arrive home in the time of the barley harvest, a three-month period takes place. And a lot happens in that three-month period. A lot. I don't know if you remember a few... Months ago, we were talking from the book of Zechariah, and I talked about a three-week period where Haggai and Zechariah began to preach. And though the temple had laid fallow, it had laid in ruins for 14 years, in three weeks, Zerubbabel began to get up and build. You know what? He didn't form a committee and say, hey guys, I think this would be a good idea. You know what he did? He got up that morning when he heard the preaching. He heard the preaching of Haggai and the preaching of Zechariah one day. And the next day he woke up and he says, I'm going to work. <laughs> and he began to go about building the temple that they'd left off for 14 years, that they'd walked by for 14 years and worked on their houses and made their houses look nice, but they left the temple in ruins. And God had said, go back and build the temple. That was a three-week period. That was an exciting three-week period, was it not? Here we're dealing with a three-month period where some exciting things happen. A woman who is, who is childless and, and is a widow and has no hope of the future is grafted in to the 
bloodline to the genealogy line of the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't tell me things can't happen quick. You think about that now. Have you had your three months? Have you had your three weeks? Maybe have you had your day? I think I've had those over and over and over again in my life. Those times whenever you come to the end of yourself, maybe you've been blaming God. We all have. We come to the end of ourselves and we think, well, what's my purpose? What's, what's the use of me being here? Well, I mean, how, how can I serve any other purpose for God? I've sinned too much. I've done too much. I've said too much. I've gone too far. I, I've, I've offended too much. I've offended not just you, Lord, but I've offended everybody around me or I've done something I shouldn't do. And, and you just think to yourself, well, what purpose do I have? And then you have that three week or that three months like this. And I'm not saying it's got to be an exact three months or three weeks or day or whatever. But the Lord comes to you and the day star dawns in your heart and you understand that there is hope. And that hope is not just lying out there in the future somewhere that you can latch on to one day whenever the Lord comes back. But that hope is existent and present for you right now. So that you can serve God now. You can get up and put your shoes on and go to work and serve God again. You can commit your works to the Lord according to Proverbs 16 and 3. You can forgive. You can repent. You can do the things that God has called you to do. You can show compassion and love like Ruth showed towards Naomi. It's interesting to note that it says there that she dwelt with her mother-in-law. You know, she wasn't out running the roads. She wasn't out pursuing the things of the world. She had such a conviction and a compassion for this poor depressed, bitter, sometimes angry woman. She said, I, I, I don't know what I can do, but I'm going to do what I can. So what could she do? Just go out to the fields. Child of God, when you don't know what to do, just go out to the fields. Just go out to the fields and serve. It says that back in the first part of the chapter, of chapter 2. It says that Ruth... After they'd been there probably a day, Naomi, it says, had a kinsman of her husband's, a mighty man of wealth in the family of Elimelech, and his name was Boaz. This is what literature refers to as foreshadowing. And it says that Ruth came to Naomi and said, let me now go to the field. She didn't know what to do, but she knew that they needed to be provided for just in the basic, simple substances of life, you know, the basic things of life. And so she says, just let me go to the field. And she's going to do something that she's never experienced over in the wicked culture of Moab because if you were poor and your, your crop didn't make in Moab and the other nations around, you know what? Nobody cared and you just starved and died. And nobody brought you any help. It was a wicked, self-centered, it's all about me culture. And if your crop didn't make, well, that's too bad. You're not moving in with us. We're not going to share with you. But God in His mercy provided in the law a way that the poor whose crop didn't make and who were widows like this woman, they could actually have sustaining. And by the way, it wasn't welfare. And I know there's some good things that welfare and disability may apply to. I know there's some situations where that's very appropriate. But in general, it's not. God has a better system than welfare. And it's called workfare. And he said, you don't cut the corners of your fields. You leave those corners. And what's that for? It's for the poor. So they can come and work and provide for themselves. And that's exactly what Ruth did. She went to glean in the field. Now this is a very difficult thing for Ruth. Because she does not look like the Israelite girls. Her hair doesn't look the same. Her skin texture is, texture is not the same. Her speech is not the same. And it, it reminds me of you know, showing up for the first day of football practice. I know this is not football, but it's, in my silly mind, this is what it reminds me of. You know, you got all these guys showing up. It's the next year. You know, who's going to be the man? You know, who's going to be the tailback? Who's going to be the receiver? Who's going to be the quarterback? And so everybody starts, you know, who's going to be the center? You know, who's going to be the right tackle? Everybody, they start doing drills. And, you know, 
and the coaches are just walking along, you know, just looking, watching this guy, and, oh, you know, mark him off. He's, you know, he's a wimp. You know, he's already fallen out. He's not in shape. He didn't run through the summer, you know. And then the next thing you know, after all the drills are done and they've been observing and running a few plays, they go up and they say, hey, hey, I want you to be the quarterback. I want you to be the receiver. I want you to be the tackle. I want you to be the, you know, because they've stood out. It's, it's a competition. You understand that? That's, that reminds me of what's going on here with Ruth. She shows up and there's all kinds of people, mostly women, mostly women here that are the poor. So I know it's a bad analogy for football. Let's say cheerleader practice or something, okay? <laughs> Who's going to be the head cheerleader? But you understand, they're all showing up here and everybody's hungry and everybody's poor. And it's like a jockeying for position going on here. And you can imagine there was probably some not very nice things said. Who are you? You don't look like the rest of these girls. She knows she doesn't look like the rest of these girls. You don't talk like the rest of these girls. Probably a little bit of bullying going on there. Lord, save us from the bullies. <laughs> and so she's very nervous, but she pushes on. When you serve God in life, there's going to be times when you're very nervous and you're, you seem intimidated. Should I say that kind word? Should I go and visit with that brother, that sister? Should I do this? Should I, should I study my Bible? Of course you should. And, and there's times when you just kind of feel intimidated. And that's exactly what Ruth felt. She felt intimidated. But you know what she did? She went on. You know why? She wasn't there for herself. She was there for someone else. Her poor, depressed, childless widow, mother-in-law. So the providence of God, if they haven't come back to Bethlehem at this particular time, if they'd come at the end of harvest, there would have been no gleaning. If they had come in the middle of winter, they would have had to go from door to door, knocking on the door, just begging for food. That's all, they would, that's all they could have done. And they probably would have got it in those days, but it's providential that God in His kind providence blessed them to arrive back quite possibly on the very day that the spring harvest uh, festival calendar begins. And this whole time period goes from, from Passover to Pentecost. You see? The providence of God. The timing of our Lord is amazing. And, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, then perhaps you've been like me in the past where you got ahead of the timing of the Lord. And then perhaps you've been like me in, in, at times in my life when I've lagged too far behind the timing of the Lord. So I didn't get to see it. But isn't it a glorious thing when you submit yourself to the Lord and you just let Him do His thing and just let Him have His say and the next thing you go, you're saying, that's amazing. That's amazing. You know, kind of like the servant of Abraham who went to find the wife for Isaac right there at the well. The first shot he had and it says, he says, I being in the way have come to the house of my master's brethren. You see, I believe that brother was not lagging too far behind and I don't believe he was jumping and skipping ahead of the Lord. You see, we want to be in on the timing of the Lord. And when we are in on the timing of the Lord, oh, great things begin to happen in life. I'm not talking about having the mansion and the car you want and the money that you want and the salary that you want and the position that you want. I'm talking about your walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. Great things begin to happen. And so there's the beautiful picture of them coming in the time of the barley harvest. And lo and behold, Ruth, look, I want you to get this. Years and years ago, I know y'all get tired of me talking about this, but it's my experience. And if you won't share yours with me, I'll share it with everybody else if you want me to. But years and years ago, when the Lord got a hold of me and I had my three months, my three weeks, you know, my day or whatever, and I, I realized I need to repent. I need to do some things different. Well, I wanted to go home. And so we packed up the U-Haul back in 1999 and we began to head out for the house. And let me tell you, I cannot wait to get there. I was driving the U-Haul. I think just Tracy was driving our vehicle. But I, I had a tearful, joyful, I, one minute I'd be praising God and singing hymns that I'd just learned. And the next minute I'd be, oh, Lord, I can't believe you, man. 
feeling so good to a wretched sinner. Yeah, I, it was a great drive home. And let me tell you something. When I got to Zion Community, whenever I got to the store, you know, the Zion Mall that y'all all have shopped at and want to go shop at all the time. You know, when I got to the store, I didn't stop right there when I got to Zion, to the Zion Mall, because I was pressing on in a little bit further. You understand that? I love Zion. It's a great place. It's a wonderful place to live. And it's a great community. But I didn't stop off at the store and get a coat. Number one, because the coats are probably 10 or 12 years old. But anyway, I didn't stop off at the store and visit with Mr. Bus. I wasn't there to see him. I was pressing on into Bethlehem. You understand that? I was pressing on into the house of bread. There was a place that I wanted to go that was a little further in. And I had to go another mile or two down the road and drive that big truck and lug it on down the road and turn on the McCool Road where I could see the sixth generation family farm that I grew up in, where my memories were, where my life had been for all of those years. I pressed on into that. And when I come on down the road there and I look up on the hill, when I looked up on the hill at the old house, I could see the outline of my father. I know this sounds really dumb, but when I looked there and I saw him standing and the wind was blowing, I thought, there's Indiana Jones. Because <laughs> my dad looked like Harrison Ford, you know, in the face and the features. And, I, and in my heart, I was like, that, that's, that's my real Indiana Jones right there. <laughs> that's my hero. That's my father. You see, I, I wasn't just satisfied in being his son. I wasn't just satisfied in coming back to the, to the community. I wanted to press on. I wanted to press a little further in. I wanted to see the ones that I loved. I wanted to go back to, the, to the, the land of my nativity. I wanted to go back to where I ran the hills and hunted and fished and, and worked and learned how to work, learned how to be a man, learned how to sweat and build a fence and work with Dad. I could see him on that hill and I thought, my, by the grace of God, I'm home. I'm so happy to be home. And when I saw him on that hill, I didn't stop. I just kept on pushing the pedal a little further and going down that dirt road and turn in the driveway and pull in there and park and embrace him. I can only hope and pray that each and every one of you have an experience like that. You don't have to have my experience. But the, the three weeks and the three months and those opportunities are there for you, child of God. They're not just for Brother Tim. They're not just for some, somebody else. You are a born-again, blood-bought child of God and those situations are there for you. But you got to be patient. And you got to wait on the timing of the Lord. And when the Lord speaks, you better listen. And when the Lord says go, you better go. The Lord said to Naomi, Go. She listened. After all the trouble and all the trials and all the tragedy that she had been through, in her heart of hearts, the Lord spoke to her and said, Go home. Go to the house of bread. Go to your Bethlehem. There's good things happening there. It's the spring harvest. <laughs> it's the time to celebrate. And this poor old woman comes into town and she's so down in the dumps and she can't, she can't help what she is. And everybody around her celebrating. Because it's the spring harvest. It's the Passover. It's when we were set free as a nation. It's when God brought us out of bondage. You find yourself in that condition, child of God. Everybody else is around you, around you is celebrating. But maybe you're like Naomi. You want to be called Marah. How we respond to the famines that come to our life. There's a famine coming to your life. You may be in a famine right now. But how we respond to the famines in our life dictate what the future holds for us. 
And Naomi and her husband made a horrible decision to go away. And our God is so good and so kind and so merciful that even though they made that horrible decision, He showed mercy and brought them home. Not just at any time and not just to any place, but in the time of the spring harvest, He brought them home. At the time of the Passover, at the time of the barley harvest, at the time of the wave offering of the first fruits, at the time of unleavened bread. And they didn't just come and sit down in... Bethlehem, Ruth said, let me now go into the field so that I can glean, so that I can get some food for us. And it says that it was just her happenstance. It just so happened. You see, that's some irony in the Word of God. You see, it wasn't just a happenstance. It wasn't just, oh well, she just happened to fall upon this field. No, the Lord was leading her steps and she didn't even know it. Have you ever been there? You've got on the other side of a trial. You've got on the other side of some kind of trouble. And the Lord was leading you and you look back and you say, I didn't even realize that He led me through the valley of shadows. I didn't even see Him there because it was so dark. But the Lord said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. And so Naomi says, go, go. And you picture Ruth leaving that house that day, brokenhearted, compassion in her heart for her poor, depressed mother-in-law and her little wearied feet that had traveled so far just a few days before, if not the day before. She begins to make her way out to where the gleaners are as they gather food and she makes her way into the field of Boaz. Is that not astonishing? She could have gone to half a dozen fields. She could have put her foot down in, in a, a sixth cousin. She could have put her foot down in the man who was the near kinsman, the guy that was nearer than Boaz. But God directed her without her even knowing it into the field of Boaz, which means strength. Child of God, if you're going through a famine and you have left the house of bread, whether that's physically metaphorically, I don't care. <laughs> we all go through famines. Sometimes they're metaphorical famines. Sometimes they're physical famines. Sometimes they're spiritual famines. But we all go through them. Don't leave the house of bread. Moab will never give you what you need. That culture will leave you hanging. It will never be there when you have needs. But praise be to God, there's a little Ruth over there who gives up her culture, comes back, and here is Naomi, returned to the house of bread, returned to where there is food. She is returned. And not only that, her daughter-in-law just happens to go into the field of Boaz. There could be no greater providence than that. So she meets Boaz, and you know what he does. I don't have time to go into it all. We're pretty much out of time, but you know what he says. He identifies her. Young ladies, young men, listen to this. Those that may be pursuing or pursued. When he identified her and showed kindness to her, he was not pursuing her as a spouse. He identified her and showed kindness to her because he loved her mother-in-law. He loved Naomi as a kinsman. You see that? What a young man or a young woman does and interacts with you as you are pursuing or being pursued, I tell you what, it's a testament to what they will do or not do whenever you are married to that person. Are y'all with me? You understand what I'm saying? Boaz was not playing the field. And that's a pretty bad pun because that was a big field right there. He was not looking for a spouse. He just recognized, is that Ruth? Is this the young woman that I have heard that has been so kind to this kinsman of mine? To who he was probably friends with Elimelech before they left. At no, no telling how many times he probably taught, tried to talk him out of going. 
Don't go over there. There's trouble over there. There's famine over there. And then they come back. He doesn't come back and they're go he's going, I told you so. You shouldn't have gone. No, he's back and he's got compassion just like Ruth. You know, a great lesson for the pursued or the being pursued is just be the kind of person that you're looking for, you know? If you're looking for this particular kind of person, don't expect to find them unless you're being that way. You want somebody that goes to church? Then be that person that goes to church. You want somebody that's kind and interactive and talkative? Well, be that person, you see? You want somebody who's friendly? Be that person who's friendly. Just be the person that you're looking for. And I see so many similarities here between Boaz and Ruth. She's just showing compassion to this poor, depressed woman. And here's Boaz just showing compassion to this poor, depressed woman. So you know what? They're on a collision course. And Boaz says, don't go anywhere else. Stay right here. You don't have to go to anybody else's field. He was not pursuing her because he wasn't even the near kinsman. He didn't have a right to pursue her under that law. He just said, I want to take care of your mother-in-law, so you stay right here. He even had her come and eat with the reapers, his employees, which was unheard of. And it says that she kept fast by the maidens of Boaz to glean until the end of barley harvest and of wheat harvest. Listen, pressing into the house of bread rather than going to the cities of Moab whenever there's famine or whenever there's good times. That is the key. It is her circumstance to fall upon the field of Boaz. And the next thing you know, when you get to the end of the wheat harvest, you go three months and there's a proposal. That was a pretty exciting three months, wasn't it? In a three-month period of time from when they returned, Naomi was childless and a widow. And the next thing you know, about three months later, the daughter-in-law's married to the near kinsman. And then nine months later, Naomi's sitting there holding this little baby called Obed. And, and don't you know, she probably had a smile on her. I know she had a smile on her face. She's going, well, this is something. I went from nothing. I went from destitute with no heir, nobody to take care of me, no hope for the future for the name of my husband. And there I am holding the future of the name of my husband. And if that's not enough, Naomi is grafted into as a great-grandmother many, many times over of the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you get a, a, any better three-month period of time than that? And they came in the beginning of barley harvest. I'll leave you with a story. And I may have shared this before, but it bears sharing again. Dr. R.G. Lee was a famous and beloved pastor of a Southern Baptist church in Memphis in the 1920s and on until about the 60s. He was famous for preaching this sermon called Payday Someday. And it's all about Jezebel and Ahab. He says that he preached that sermon like 2,000 times. So if I get a little repetitive, I hadn't reached 2,000. Okay? R.G. Lee preached that sermon 2,000 times. He had it memorized. He preached it so many times. But R.G. Lee, his mother's name was Elizabeth. And one day when R.G. was a little boy, he asked his mother, Elizabeth, what was the happiest day of her life? And she told him a story that went back to the time of the Civil War when she was a little girl and her dad had fought for the South. And while he was away, Elizabeth's mother had to do all the work, obviously, because her husband was gone. And one day a letter came, a dreaded letter. And the letter said that your husband was killed in battle. Elizabeth said that she never heard her mother crying much during the day. But it was one of those old clapboard houses, very thin walls with no insulation, and that at night, as the kids slept in their room, they could hear the mother sobbing as she cried into the pillow, missing her husband, who she had been told was killed in battle. And about four months later, as the summer began, and they were harvesting, the story goes that they were all sitting on the front porch 
of the house shelling beans. Some of y'all have been there. I've been there and I hated it. They were shelling beans. And they looked down the road and they saw this man coming down the road. And the mother said, Elizabeth, honey, that man coming yonder looks like the walk of your father. And they just continued to shell their beans. And the man kept on coming down the road. And as they watched him, the children thought, it can't be him. Then as the man came to the gate, he turned in the gate. Elizabeth, Elizabeth said that her mother tossed her bucket of beans to the ground, ran out into the yard, and embraced her husband, who had been thought to have been killed in battle. All of the kids gathered around, hugging. What a festival, right? And Elizabeth told little R.G. Lee, it was the happiest hour I ever knew. Our father, who we thought was dead, returned home again. And Elizabeth went on to say, that happiest hour that I, never, that I ever knew, when my father returned, who we thought was dead, is a distant, pale shadow of the happiest hour that we're going to know when we're all together in heaven. And until that time comes, child of God, Moab is not a choice. In times of plenty, in times of famine, the house of bread is the choice. That's where you hear about these things. That's where you learn about these things. And who knows, here today, this very day, might be the beginning of your three weeks or your three months or your day. You say, I've lived in sin too long, Brother Tim. Naomi had lived in Moab too long. You understand that? And yes, we all have lived in sin too long. But you have a gracious God. You have a festive God. And who knows? On our journey from famine to feasting, from the house of famine to the house of bread, you may arrive just in time for the beginning of barley harvest. I tell you, child of God, it's dark out there. We need light. We need light in the house of God. We need light in each other. We need to have the kind of attitude that Ruth had towards her mother-in-law when she couldn't even see what steps to take. She took them anyway. May the Lord bless us to come to the house of bread in the time of the barley harvest.